Oh, he's talking on the phone. Okay. I got you. Let's see here. Come on, red button. So do you from Australia? Oh. Okay, we are on. And we're going to start with Psalm 119, verse 73. Yo. Associated with the word hand, work, throw, and worship. Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wrong, wrong, wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes, may my heart be blameless towards your decrees, I may not be shamed. All right. Okay. Now we're going to, in a second, we're going to get into the book of Romans, but I want to read you something first that uh, somebody emailed me today, and I just thought, it's so nice to, to be here at the Superior Word and to uh, be able to share with people that are streaming online, people that attend elsewhere, and uh, this is their church. And this came in just an hour or so ago, and I asked him, I mean, an hour or so before I left today, I asked him, can I read this to the church? And he said, yes. So he said, hello, Pastor Charlie. I don't think you may remember me, but I sent you some links about homosexual lifestyle being paid for by the taxpayer. This is over in England. He attends online. The NHS lost its appeal in the high court and are now running trials with these drugs with the hope of a wide distribution to all areas of the UK. The main reason I'm contacting you is to say what a great father in heaven we have. I just finished a telephone conversation with a sister in Christ that I haven't seen for a while and was telling her I'd been strongly invited to leave the church because I disagreed with the vicar over her, now listen to this, lesbian lifestyle, and having a live-in lover, and announced in church of their engagement to marry. Our sister asked where I was going to. I told her I felt I had nowhere to go, but not to be anxious for me, because I had found a wonderful church online, and that had learned more of, well, I don't want to give you all the, he said some nice comments about the, the studies, and he said, um, uh, he, I'll briefly say he learned more, from the Bible in a few months and he has in all of the years of attending the Church of England. So that's the Church of England that has this lesbian pastor who's getting married to a woman. So this isn't, these prophecy updates show you what's going on. Anyway, he goes on, um, which church, she asked. When I told her it was a church in Sarasota, Florida, she exclaimed, you don't mean with Pastor Charlie Garrett. <laughs> on replying yes, she said, uh, saying she watched your sermon, she too watched your sermons, and in fact, it sent you some cards, which another batch came in the Bible today, which um, hand out at the uh, mission work, um, with tracks of Bible verses to you. We agreed that uh, we're so grateful towards you for teaching. Okay, some more comments, which I'll skip. Our Lord has certainly blessed you, Pastor, but he, more than that, he has blessed us, too, through your teaching. By the way, our sister's name is, uh, I better not give her name without her permission, but anyway, um, uh, I sent her an email today to ask her something else, and if she gives me permission, then you'll meet her anyway. Uh, and then he says, um, God bless you, Pastor Charlie, because we have agreed to get together with others in the near future and show them and share your sermons with them. Once again, may God, our Father, keep on blessing you and your team, yours in Christ. 
So I thought that is really wonderful that we have people in England that don't have any church to go to, and yet they can attend with us right no, here in Sarasota, Florida. The, the vicar didn't get in touch with you. No, the, vic the vicar didn't get in touch with me. No, no, this was him telling his friend that he was leaving because of what happened. And hello, Tom Alley. So um, I, I just thought I'd read that to you because it was very, very wonderful to see. Um, a couple more things. We have um, Sergio and Rhoda and their friend Ethan just got here. They arrived just now in Sarasota. And um, I would like, while we're opening in uh, church right now, I'd like us to remember that they are going through a dilemma in their own life. And uh, so we want to remember them in prayer as we open. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the uh, wonderful opportunity of being here in your presence. We thank you for your wonderful word, which uh, guides us and is our uh, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we would ask that you would help us to handle it properly and to cherish it always and to hold fast to it and to let it be that light and guide and uh, our, our mainstay in this life. And um, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to fellowship with other Christians, not only here, but obviously people from elsewhere in the world as well that are uh, hungry for your word, and we thank you for that. And we do pray, especially tonight, for uh, Sergio and Rhoda, who are, are looking for guidance from you for their future, whatever it may be. And you know the uh, desire and heart of each person that attends here regularly, and we would hope that that would come to pass. But if it's not your will, that uh, you would lead them to a place where they will have a good fellowship, where they will have um, uh, the ability to continue to attend with us as well, and also uh, where they would be able to meet their financial needs for you know, the life that they have ahead of them. So we thank you for the opportunity to pray these things, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. That immigration ban on people going out? Yes, there is. There's an immigration ban on all um, uh, Israelis. They're required to stay in the U.S. So, uh, yeah, it, it would be really nice. We need your expertise against ISIS. Uh, yes, absolutely. You could also hire him as your assistant pastor. Too. Well, we could do that if we were, you know, a functioning church. I mean, as far as... <laughs> have to run it by the board. Yeah, people online don't know the structure of this church, but uh, this is this is a very very loosely structured church. Um, uh, and then one other announcement that uh, is, you never know when you're going to get your ticket punched in this life and when your next moment, uh, maybe when your next moment is your final moment. And uh, things happen that uh, we saw the Walendas had a fall today. Five of them were hurt and, they, you know, they could have they died. So uh, we don't know that. But there, this pertains directly to this congregation as one person sitting here right now is hit, hit and run by a BMW in the past couple days. And uh, it, he actually got hit so hard that it broke the uh, um, mirror off of the guy's BMW and the guy kept going and he had an accident a mile down the road and so the police got him. But Rick is alive today by God's grace alone. So, you know, what, what I'm trying to tell you there is that... Uh, I'm riding bike lane, minding my own business. Whacked right into you. on Siesta Key where I live and... Five o'clock Monday, perfectly beautiful day. There, there was nothing going on. This guy, come, he didn't do it on purpose, but he hit me with his passenger side mirror. My kidneys right here. Busted the mirror off his car. I go flying down. Fortunately, there wasn't a car behind me. I land. My bike's, I'm tall, so my bike's way up there. I land. I look, and this SOB takes off. Drunk and then he takes up. So it turns out about 10 minutes later, fire, I was fine. I mean, I'm, 
Right. Uh, no doubt about it. So the police so the, arrested the guy him. Goes down the road, a mile and a half down the road, crashes into a palm tree. So he's got four felony counts. Yeah. Well, so I, as soon as I, I gave them the paperwork, the fire department, came, I took off on my bike. My bike was fine. Right. I take yeah. on my bike to ride down to see what this clown looked like. And uh, he could. He, they tried to do him. Do the you know the drunk test where you walk one foot. Uh, he couldn't even start that. Oh. And this guy's driving a car, so you guys riding bikes, Jim. You know, you never know. I don't care what time of the day you yeah. go or what whatever light or dark or whatever. I agree. I, I agree. I, I need that. They can't hear what you're saying, so oh. I I need to get back into the class uh, so, because people online can't hear all the way sure. back there. But, but the, the point here. that I am making here <laughs> is that we don't know our final end, no, yes. okay? Sure. And that we want to, one, be thankful that he's alive, but two, we want to uh, cherish the right now in this life and to always have our eyes fixed on Amen. the life to come because <laughs> life is tenuous at best. And so that's the point that I wanted to make. And I have one more thing. I know that I'm long on the introduction before we get into the Bible class, and I apologize for that. But I got this in the mail today, um, and I don't know who sent it. Somebody had posted on Facebook they were going to send me one, and I don't remember who it was. So if that was you and you see this right now, it's a really wonderful Jesus shirt. It says, catch up with Jesus, and then it says, blessed from my head to my toes, tomatoes. So if you sent this, please let me know, because um, and if you don't see this, I'll ask again at the uh, Prosty Update this week. But I very much appreciate that being sent to me, and I just want to be able to thank the person, and it didn't come with any note or anything. So anyway, I apologize for the long introduction, and um, if you're online and you couldn't hear what Rick says, I apologize about that, but uh, we're thankful that he is alive today. So we're going to get right into the book of Romans now. We're in chapter 3, verse 3. So um, uh, Romans 3, verse 3, let me turn there, and then we'll get started into that. And um, start at 1. Yeah, start at one because it's it's certainly not the beginning of a... Yeah, go ahead and start with one, and then we'll just end with three. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much way, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Three. What if someone did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's fullness? Okay, and mine reads a little different. What if someone did not believe... Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Okay, so here are my comments on that verse. Um, this verse, following immediately after verse 2, should be looked at in conjunction with verse 2. So I'll read them both. It says, much in every way, chiefly because to them, meaning the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? All right. Now, as the stewards of God's oracles, and we talked about that last week, we know that Luke was not a Jew. If anybody says otherwise, or it was two weeks ago, Usama was here last week. If someone says otherwise, all you need to do is take them to Colossians chapter 3, and it is clear there. And yet, once again, we were talking about people not wanting to believe what the Bible says. There are people that will look at that, and it's as obvious as it could be, and they'll say, well, that doesn't mean what it says. Um, you know, it's like people that uh, we were talking specifically about Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, what does Jesus say when he says to Thomas, you know, put your finger here and see that I uh, see a spirit does not have flesh and bone as I have. And yet the Jehovah's Witnesses will read that and they'll completely deny that he had a bodily resurrection. When the whole point of him saying that and that being recorded in the gospel was because we are to accept what the Bible says. But their theology says that he was raised a spirit being and so they don't believe that he had a physical body. 
Um, it, one of the many heresies that goes on in the Jehovah's Witnesses. When something says something, we take it at face value, okay? And that's the problem there. But um, Luke was not a Jew. The only other, uh, which means that Acts and the book of Luke were not compiled by Jews. One other possibility in the Bible is the book of Job. We don't know who wrote it. If it was Job, he was not a Jew, and that would make three books in the Bible that were not. But having said that, they were the stewards of those oracles, the Old Testament. So whether Job wrote it or not, the Jews were the stewards of it. That's what he's speaking of here. They were the people that maintained God's word. They kept faithful, uh, faithfully recorded it, and it was documented by them. So as the stewards of God's oracles, they have a special part in God's dealings with the world. And the implication is, and which is explicitly stated throughout the Bible, that God will deal with them in a way which will always preserve them as a people. Okay? I know that replacement theologians don't want to agree with that. But the fact is, we have one Jew sitting right here who's married to a non-Jew, but uh, together they're both um, uh, from Israel. And that one Jew is just as much a testimony to God's faithfulness to the, his promise as all of them in the world. Okay? And I, he's not a Jew Jew. He's a Christian Jew. I wanted to clarify that in case somebody was watching online. But um, uh, he will always maintain the Jewish people. Writers going back like um, Adam Clark. I brought him up in a sermon a while ago that if you don't watch those sermons, you wouldn't know it. But he, long before the Zionist movement, several times in his commentary said that God is saving these people for a very specific purpose. He says there's no other logical explanation for them. And he goes through this long analysis of them as a people and their odd characteristics and how they come into a society and they never quite merge in and they always remain distinct and separate. And he says this is throughout all of them. Wherever you go, these Jews are always their own little people. He says there is only one possible explanation for this is that God is preserving them for something, and I think he said something like something wonderful in the future. He didn't understand dispensationalism because he was before dispensationalism was really reintroduced by John Darby, but he knew that this he was one of the forerunners of this, this mindset. Another thing he did was uh, uh, at the end of the book of Amos, I believe it is. I think it's Amos. Let me go there really quickly, and I'll read you this. Um, it all pertains to what we're talking about here, but it may be Hosea, but I think it's Amos. And his comment on that particular verse, yes, this is speaking um, in Amos uh, verse 9, we'll start in verse 13, the chapter 9, verse 13 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grains him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. Okay? Well, that could have been after the first exile, right? AD 70? It says, They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. Okay? Still sounds like it could be after the first exile. The last verse of the book of Amos says this, I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Were they pulled up after AD 70? Yes, they were pulled up in, I'm sorry, in, uh, were they pulled up after the Babylonian exile of 70 years? Yes, they were pulled up in AD 70. Okay? They were pulled up and they were scattered around the world. This here says that I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up. So there's only one of two possibilities concerning this verse. God is wrong. God is wrong. The Bible is fallible and we are not following the right God. Or Israel is back in the land and they will never be pulled up again and he has made an eternal covenant with them them and the land. They are tied to the land. 
and that has happened in our life. Now, I've said this. If this is proven false, if Israel is taken out the way the Iranians say they're going to push them into the sea, we might as well take this and just throw it away. That will never, never happen. God has made his promise. It's going to happen. They are in the land. But you can show that verse to a replacement theologian, and they will deny that it says what it says, because they are unwilling to accept that there is a plan and a purpose for the Jews within the dispensational model. People need to take the Bible at face value. Adam Clark, on his commentary on this, before the Zionist movement started, said that this has never been filled in human history, and therefore the Jews will be returned to the land, and they will never be plucked up again. And he was bold enough to say that in his commentary. So if you don't believe me, go read. As a matter of fact, let me read that to you. Does anybody mind me pulling that up here really quickly? Just so you don't think I'm making this up out of my head. Oh, you're looking it up, though. Didn't you say that, that he was the fellow who started? No, no, no. John Darby was Darby. really the, uh, he was the uh, main. Uh, but actually, dispensationalism did not start with John Darby. I want everybody to know that because people will say, well, that was a later teaching. It came about the time of John Darby. And that's not true. Dispensationalism started with the pen of Paul in the book of Romans. That's when dispensationalism started, at least in writing. It started from God's mind from, from eternity past. But dispensationalism was not something invented by John Darby. It's right here in the Bible. All you have to do is believe it. So we've got uh, uh, Amos 9, verse 15. It says A-M-O-S. Hang on, give me one second here. I'm learning how to use this thing all over again. Every day is a new learning experience for me. That's what you just read. And, uh, yes, Amos 9, 15. And then what I want to do is I want to go to the comment on that. And um, uh, hang on a second here, comment. And uh, why am I not finding this? Give me a second here. Um, uh, oh, here it is right here. It's in different form from my computer, and so I didn't see it. Okay, I'm going to go to Adam Clark. All right, Amos 9, go down to the bottom, and he says right here, and they shall no more be pulled up. This is Adam Clark writing. Most certainly this prophecy has never yet been fulfilled. Okay, so I wasn't making that up. They were pulled out by the Assyrian captivity and by that of Babylon. Many were planted in again and again pulled out by the Roman conquest and captivity and were never since planted in but are now scattered among all the nations of the earth. This is before they were even starting to be regathered. I conclude... What year is this? Uh, I'll give you in sure. a second. I conclude, as the word of God cannot fail, and this has not yet been fulfilled, it therefore follows that it will and must be fulfilled to the fullness of its spirit and intention. And this is established by the conclusion, saith the Lord thy God. He is Jehovah and cannot fail. He is thy God and will do it. He can do it because he is Jehovah and he will do it because he is thy God. Amen. That's a man that's willing to put out his foot when nobody else even believed that this was possible. Now, because he asked a question, then we'll get back into We're in Romans. This is part of Romans right here because it's verifying what I'm talking about. But Adam Clark, C-L-A-R, you want to know when he was alive, and I used to know this, and I, oh, no, I don't want that. Let me go back. Um, uh, I don't want the commentary. I want, oh, see what I've done? Yeah. And, well, now I've got to do that again because... This is a completely different than my uh, computer and uh, ARK. 18th century. Okay, 18th century, so 1700s. 1760-1762. Okay. Uh, so until 1832. So 1832 is when he died, yeah. and he probably wrote that many years before he died. And so, it, it, anyway, that was before the Zionist movement started to take place, and this guy knew that God was faithful to his word. So that all bears on what we're saying in Romans chapter 3, as the stewards of God's oracles, 
they have a special part in God's dealings with the world, and the implication is, and which is explicitly stated throughout the Bible, that God will deal with them in a way which will always preserve them as a people. If this is so, then what if some of them did not believe, as Paul says here? Let me turn back to Romans now. It says, um, uh, what if some did not believe? What if some did not believe? Paul is being gracious here because the vast majority of the nation rejected Christ. And we know this. There was just a remnant, even from the very beginning, that were willing to follow Christ. The majority did not. Um, uh, remnant uh, followed Christ just as they rejected their Lord throughout their history, thus resulting in judgment and exile. What about this? That's what Paul is asking. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God null and void? Is God's faithfulness null and void because they're uh, unbelievable? In other words, this verse I just read you from Amos 9, verse 15. Is that going to be null and void because they're unfaithful to him? Well, we've got his answer. On the surface, this question seems clear and accuses God of being unfaithful. It is an argument which Paul had probably heard time and again. Those looking to find fault in God will propose such a thought in order to excuse their own unbelief. I, I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed to somebody and they've used examples like this. However, the question contains flawed human reasoning, which Paul will clearly refute as he lays out his argument. Throughout chapter 2, Paul showed that a believing Gentile is in better standing with God than an unbelieving Jew. Everybody remember that? We talked about that in detail. He also demonstrated that the sign of circumcision is pointless unless it's accompanied by living out what the sign is intended to convey, which is a relationship with God. If you don't have a relationship with God, the sign means nothing. And I won't bring that up as an example right now, but I personally know Jews that are circumcised. They are Jews in name only, and they have no relationship with the covenant God of Israel, nor with Jesus. I mean, they don't even want their Old Testament God, but they want the badge of honor that goes along with the circumcision and all of the secret handshakes and the, uh, you know, the free matzo bread and all that goes along with that. But that is not, God is saying that a Gentile is in a better standing with the Lord when he believes in Christ and is obedient to him than any Jew who isn't. That's just the way it is, okay? So he also demonstrates, oh yeah, I read that, that those who are uncircumcised and live in faith will have their uncircumcision counted as circumcision. All right? You're reckoned as if you're circumcised because circumcision is of the heart. heart. That's right. It's of the heart, and it is of the spirit. It is not of the flesh. Okay? And remember that one that he, he said, um, a person who is a Jew, uh, verse 29 of chapter 2, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision of the heart, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not of the letter, and then he makes that pun. Whose praise, Jew, whose praise is not from men, but from God. A Jew doesn't come from man's circumcision of the flesh, it comes from God, okay? Because Jew means praise, or it comes from the word Judah, which means praise. So he's making a pun there at the end of chapter two. Um, he goes on, he says, or I go on. Um, uh, but if their circumcision, which is the sign of the covenant, doesn't save them, then doesn't this nullify God's faithfulness? That's the question. Well, I'm circumcised, okay? If that doesn't save me, then does that mean that God is unfaithful? This is the argument and is what Paul will cover in the verses ahead. So a Jew will get up to the, the judgment seat and they'll say, well, I was circumcised, right? I did what I was supposed to do in order to be brought into the fold of Israel. And so because you are condemning me, that means that you're not faithful to the covenant. 
Absolutely not. 100% absolutely not, because the covenant had much more than just circumcision. Circumcision was a sign that they were to be obedient to the laws of God. And eventually, the laws of God pointed to what? To Christ. So they were to be obedient to Christ. They were to receive Christ, and they were to be obedient to God through Christ, not of their own works. God's faithfulness is not negated by their unfaithfulness. Old Testament and New, all the way through the Bible, faith is what justifies a person, and that is it. Not a sign of circumcision, not any work of any kind. As I said, people always want to say that the law was works plus faith. That's absolutely not true. The law was always a faith, and that is demonstrated by the Day of Atonement. If you didn't have a Day of Atonement, or if, you, if there is a Day of Atonement in the law that you must obey, it implies that they have not obeyed, okay? If I didn't have to go to the Day of Atonement, it meant that I lived perfectly and I was in a right standing before God. But everybody was required to go down there and admit their guilt before the Lord every single year. Day of Atonement proves that it was by faith and by faith alone. David in the Psalms, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Well, how does that happen? It happens apart from the law. Everything about the law, even the law itself, was of faith. It was just simply demonstrated in works after faith, okay? Uh, but not works plus faith. It was faith, and then the works were, it's like us when we're saved by faith, and then we're supposed to do things in order to show that we are saved. And if we don't, who suffers? We do. We do. God doesn't. He doesn't suffer for our lack of doing things. We do. Okay, so life application, and we're getting get into another verse. Um, one thing, one of the things that's lacking in the daily lives of people is clear thinking. Anybody disagree with that when you talk to a Democrat? <laughs> okay. Um, it is something that requires training and must be developed through practice and study. That's why I say go get that book, Critical Thinking, study it, learn how to think critically. When you read the newspaper, you'll see where people's arguments fall apart. And you can very clearly show them. You're saying this and this, but it doesn't equal that. People don't think clearly. They don't want to take the time to get their brain working. Everything comes out as emotions. When you dictate your politics or when you dictate your theology, especially by emotions, you've lost the game. You, emotions should never be introduced into theology. Emotions should be a result of theology. Okay? When you see what Christ did for you, the sin debt that he paid for you, then you should be jubilant over that. But you should never insert your emotions into your theology to come to a conclusion. If you do that, you have erred. Okay? So, um, it is something that requires training and must be developed through practice and study. Without clear thinking, arguments which are otherwise convoluted may seem right. Does anybody remember the proverb that says one person gives an argument and it sounds good until the next guy comes and presents his case? I know it's a paraphrase of that, but it's saying that, oh, this sounds good. You're in a court of law. You, you, you ever watch, um, what was it, uh, Perry Mason? Remember him? And the guy would give a case and it sounds like he's got the right thing. And then he'd come in and he'd present his case and he always won because he was a clear thinker and he had all of the evidence and he had the ability to demonstrate truth. Okay. You can listen to two arguments, you can say, gee, that sounds right, until the next guy steps forward and you say, I see what I was missing, okay? Um, take time to study critical thinking, either through self-study on the internet or by enrolling in a college course, and you can do that for free. Most colleges will allow you to, what's it called? Does anybody know the term when you, what? Audit, thank you. You can audit a course, almost any course at any college, anytime, for free. You just sit and you watch it and you don't get any credit for it, but they allow you to learn from their courses. 
and you can you say, I want to audit this course, and I'll send it to you if it's already done or if you want to watch online while he's doing it. And that is something that many, many colleges will allow you to do. If you want to learn about you know, archaeology, go to an archaeological uh, course in a college and say, I'd like to audit this course, and they will let you do that. You get the knowledge, but you just don't get the degree. degree. And who cares about degrees? Degrees. I keep saying crees. Anyway, um, so uh, study uh, critical thinking, and um, you will be surprised how pertinent your studies will be to your daily life. And I absolutely assure you that. If you take a critical thinking course, you will say, I never thought this way, but boy, I'm glad I took that course because all of a sudden things start making right sense. Okay? Verse four, go ahead. Oh, wait, he's got something. Too technical. Okay? The Jews don't appear before the judgment seat. Well, they will appear before a judgment seat. Oh, uh, okay. The yes. White throne judgment. The white throne judgment. That's right. And two, they don't go down to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. You go, did I say down to Jerusalem? Yes, okay, well, I didn't mean to do that. But yes, they will stand before a judgment. It won't be the Bema seat of Christ. But they will, all people will stand before a judgment seat. Everybody, saved and unsaved. It depends on which one, whether, you know, whether you're going to heaven or heck, but you're going to one. Okay. Um, oh, somebody brought up a point just before we started, and we might as well tell this in case somebody's online and you're arguing with somebody about um, how unfair it is and Jesus would not build walls. Jesus is the first wall builder. The New Jerusalem will have walls that are, what, 144 cubits high. Okay. It has gates. And there is only citizens allowed into that place. So don't let anybody on Facebook tell you that you're being unchristian by saying that we should have walls or keep immigrants out. We have a right to defend our nation. It's that simple. Okay. I just wanted to bring that up because it's a very good point is that the, the, uh, the, the pattern is set by God himself. And he is the one that established nations, by the way. He did that back at, when did he do that? Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. Yeah, the table of nations, yes, is, is broken down, but the ta uh, Tower of Babel is actually when he dispersed the nations. So you're right and I'm right. Okay, anyway, um, uh, Genesis 10 is the table of nations. Genesis 11 shows where it happened at. He spread them around, and he determined these things for a purpose. Not having nations is contrary to God's will, okay, during this time on earth. Someday there won't be any more nations. There will be one nation. But right now, God has done this for a specific reason. We are working against God by doing what we're doing in the world right now. We're working against him. And one of the arguments is, well, my wife is from a foreign country. I've had people email me, angry at me because I said this. Well, my wife's from a foreign country too. And what did she do when she married me? She took our citizenship and she has molded herself to the customs and norms of this nation. She is no longer a citizen of Japan. She is a citizen of America. And she had to earn that right. It did not come free for her. Okay? And every person that comes in here illegally has not earned their right. And no person is going to go into the New Jerusalem who has not earned, through the blood of Christ, the right to go in there. Okay? So we have the pattern set by the Creator already. And so, yes? Well, outside of this country, you don't have the rights... Citizen. That's right. That's the craziest. That's right. Figure. People try to say that they have sorry, our rights. I, I they do not have this. our rights. And they are outside of our other countries. We abide by the rights of the that country. nation. That's right. I've lived in other countries, and I can tell you that they do not tolerate the type of talk that we have here. I can absolutely assure you of that. If I tried to act the way that I, uh, the people do here, 
I would have had a problem in Japan. In Malaysia, they would have just deported me. They couldn't do anything because I had a diplomatic passport. But that's beside the issue. Unless okay. you come to Israel, you can be American. We accept you. There you go. Israel's the exception. Welcome. 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 Well, we don't want you going there anyway. Okay, verse, verse 4. Did you read verse 4 yet? No, you haven't. Go ahead. Not at all. Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proven right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Okay, I'm going to read that as well because mine's way different. It says the same thing, but it's just different. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Okay, right. same basic thought, but you, mine says justified and yours says um, proven. Uh, you say when you are judged. Mine is when you judge. Right. So action versus... Yeah, absolutely. So there's something wrong there. There is something wrong there. Okay, and it probably is based on the, the Alexandria Byzantine text. It's probably not the translators, but I don't know that. I could check that, but I'm not going to. Yeah. Anyway, verse 3-4. This verse is in response to 3-3. Three, three. He asked a question, and now he's responding to it. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? The answer rings forth very clearly, certainly not. Other translations say, God forbid, of course not, not at all, may it never be, absolutely not. One says, that would be unthinkable, by no means, no indeed, and so on. It is an expression that translators seem to enjoy trying to find a new and exciting yet clear acceptable translation just to be unique. And there's about 50 verses in the Bible where people do this. One of them is, um, I think it's Genesis 1, verse 2. might be, I want to make sure before I say it, but um, Genesis 1, verse 2. Um, no, hang on. Uh, yeah, 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You want to see a bunch of variations in that, okay? I'm telling you, that is, let me, let me pull it up, just because it's so fun to show you this, so you can see why I'm doing this, because it ties in with what Paul is saying. Um, hang on here, I've got to go, uh, we want to go there, and uh, then Bible Hub. How come I keep losing this? Genesis 1, oh, I'm right there. Okay, Genesis 1, 2, parallel, it says, um, now the earth was formless and empty. The earth was formless and empty. The earth was without form and void. The earth was formless and void. The earth was without form and void. None of them have been the same yet. They've been close. Now the earth was formless and empty. That was the same. When the earth was yet unformed and desolate, now the earth was without shape and empty. Now the earth was formless and empty. The earth was, for, uh, the same one there, um, same one there. Um, uh, the earth was without order and empty. Uh, the earth was, a um, couple of these are the same, was waste and void. Another guy says welter and waste. Um, the earth was, uh, that one's the same. The earth was waste and empty. The earth was waste and void. The earth was without form and void. Now the earth was formless and empty, and the earth hath existed waste and void. So it's like people just revel in finding a different translation of certain passages because it, it's uh, uh, some you can't do that with, but some some versions or verses in the Bible you can literally translate twenty different ways and they all make sense. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, and so we have all these different possibilities for this translation, and it is an expression, as I said, that translators seem to enjoy trying to find a new and exciting and clear, acceptable translation, just so they can be unique. The term in Greek is me genoito. 
Albert Barnes says it is telling us to not let this not happen by any means supposed. In other words, just no way. Absolutely not. Okay. Instead of us supposing that God's faithfulness is tied to man's actions, we are told to hold fast to the conviction that he is a perfect and unchanging being, and therefore that which is found in him is absolute truth. And that's what I was saying when I was going over the last verse, is that man looks at things from their perspective. God never changes. When he says something, that is it. When he said in Amos uh, 9.15 that this was going to happen, it is going to happen. And that's why um, when Adam Clark writes about the nature of God, he uses the term Jehovah, the existent God. He, he, he will... Adam Clark is very good about it. He'll say the Lord when it's just speaking of the Lord in a general sense. But when he makes a proclamation, he always brings in the name Jehovah. And the reason why is because that goes back to Genesis 3.14. I am who I am. Self-existent. There's no change in him. Everything about him must come to pass. Yes. Exodus. Exodus. What do you mean? Exodus. Oh, Exodus. Oh, I said Genesis. Thank you. Exodus 3.14. Okay. Anyway, he's right. I do that a lot. I get thinking one thing and... uh, Okay, so, um, uh, where was I? Um, uh, He is perfect and unchanging being, and therefore that which is found in him is absolute truth. As this is so, all that is true stems from him, and there is nothing untrue which can be attributed to him. Okay? We've got all kinds of falsehoods in the world. And we could say, well, somebody told a lie, and God created him, therefore God, you know, is the initiator of the lie. No, no. That's where free will comes in, okay? That goes right back to the fall of man. They were in innocence. God told them not to do something. He gave man free will, okay? Anything, if you, people struggle over the problem of evil. What is evil? How can there be evil if God is good, okay? If God is all good, as people say, then how can there be evil in the world? And how do you answer that? What's that? Well, the devil, but he created the devil, so the absence of God the absence of God okay human, that's close human freedom. well human freedom but what I'm trying to say is is how do you explain that to somebody because you tell them well we, we have free will and they'll say well God created me and I have free will therefore he is the initiator of evil you have to ask yourself what is evil and you're very close to what you just said we're under the curse of the original sin. what is evil if we're under a curse and he it's created us, of God. I mean, going a different way. evil is the absence of good. Evil is, that's what you want to remember. Evil is the absence of good. Okay, if you have a car, brand new car is all one piece of metal, right? If you're up in New York right now because they're salting the roads, my daughter's up there and it snowed a foot today, what's going to happen to that car eventually? Rust. It's going to get rust. It's going to have a hole. What is that hole? Absence of metal. It is the absence of metal. Okay, yes, it's decay, but what literally is it? It is the absence of metal. It is something we would call evil. It is the absence of good because good is structure. Okay, and this is important to understand this because this is what Paul is speaking about right here. When you have evil in the world, how can you say that God is uh, a good God when the Jews are circumcised and yet they're going to hell? How do you how do you explain that to people? And they say. This person killed this little baby child. How can there be a good God if that person killed that good baby child? Because God is perfectly good. He has given us free will, and our free will is exercised against his goodness. It is a lack of good. He has given us everything we need in order to be good. 
It is we who introduce the evil. And it, actually, the devil who introduced it. But once again, that devil exercised his will against God. Okay? Go back and watch the uh, Genesis 1 1 through uh, probably 1 10 sermons that I did, and it will explain this. But it's important to be able to identify this because people will ask you that question, and if you can't tell them, then they walk away unsatisfied. And they say, well, your God's just as impotent as any other God. That's not true. It is we who have been given the right to make free will decisions. We exercise our will against him, and that is an absence of good. Okay, it's not an absence of God. It's an absence of good. Okay? Think of all you need to do is just think, remember the example of the metal on the car and the rust. What is it? It is a lack of what that is. And that will... It's a good way of remembering that so that when people talk to you, you say, it's a lack of this thing. Okay, yes. Darkness and light, I've heard that too before. Darkness, darkness and light. Darkness is not an existent thing. It's a lack of light. That's there's right. No, where is there light? There's darkness. But That's right. light is the actual substance. You can measure it. You can. That's true. But you have to remember that God is light. Right. So he has always been there. Okay, it says that, you know, it talks about the light, but the light of God always has existed. That's true. It is correct. But God has always been there as light. So you don't want to just say darkness and light because it makes it look like there's the the uh, yeah, the, yeah. the Buddhist or the you know the, the the conflict. There's no conflict with darkness and light between God. God is the creator of matter, but in Him He is light. That is His nature. It is His being. Um, that's uh, what John one and one John one will speak about that. So we've got to be careful not to get into a more Buddhist way of looking at it. There's this this um, a war between darkness and, and light. Okay. okay, it is true that light dispels the darkness, but the light has always existed. Okay, and yes? Just the thought of when you talk about darkness and light and the clouds and a rainy day and people, and you know what? The sun is always shining above the clouds. The sun is always shining up above the clouds, even on a rainy day. That's right. So, and God gives us the rain for our benefit. So, and you're that. absolutely right about that. <laughs> okay, you had something, then we go on. Okay, you're talking about the goodness. Yes. Romans 2 4. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. That's right. The goodness of God leads you to repent. In other words, to turn to Him. Repentance, remember, is the word metanoia. It means to change your mind. I am not in accord with God's will, and I am turning my mind towards God's will. And the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And that's a perfect, perfect verse for that. Because I'm saying I have something that is lacking. There's a lack of good in my life, and I want that good. And where does that good come from? It comes from the only place where goodness stems from, God. He is not the one that created the hole in the car, okay, or the lack of good. We did. Well, Jesus we, said, to, uh, what was the lawyer? Why well, call me good? There's only that's one right. good, and that's God. Right. It, God is good. Yeah. He is good all the time. That's exactly right. Okay, so we'll go on. It says, um, uh, as this is so, I'm going to read that verse again, or that word, sentence again. As this is so, all that is true stems from him, and there is nothing untrue which can be attributed to him. And because of this, even if every single Israelite on the planet was unfaithful, it would have absolutely no bearing on whether he was faithful or not. In a judicial proceeding, his innocence would stand while all the others would receive a guilty verdict. All others. And that goes right back to the fall of man. All are condemned anyway. So just to have yourself circumcised doesn't mean anything if you're not going to do what God has asked you to do in order to be brought into a right standing with him. So, guilty verdict. To substantiate this, Paul returns to Scripture. He actually just goes right back to the law itself, and he states, as it is written. The Greek word is gegrathai, and it carries the weight of saying, that was written then, and it still stands today. 
God's law never never changes. It never is voided. And so, you know, people, before I go on with this thought, remember, you're going to have people that say, well, if God's law stands forever, why are you eating pork? If God's law stands forever, why are you not observing a Sabbath? How do you answer that? New covenant fulfilled in Christ. It is fulfilled in Christ. Not just a new covenant, but it is fulfilled in Christ in order to initiate the new covenant. That's why we talked about this earlier. When Jesus died on the cross, his last words were, it is finished. That's right. Fulfilled. Tetelestai is the word. The word teleo means paid in full. The law which stood contrary to us is paid. The debt is paid. His blood is what established the new covenant. So, that's why we're not under the law, is because the law is fulfilled. Well, then people will take, I want to go back a little further, just so that people understand. Jesus said, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot, not one tittle of the law uh, will uh, drop from the law until all is fulfilled. And they say, see, you're under the law. You have to observe the law of Moses. This is the most common teaching in the world with Hebrews Roots Movement people. What is the problem with that? Christ fulfilled the law. He said, until the law is fulfilled. That means that the law still has complete and full custody over all humanity. So if you all, asked, when would it be fulfilled? Would they have an answer for that? Yeah, that's what I'm getting to right now. Sorry. <laughs> the, the law has complete and absolute control over all human beings. Everybody. It has it over you and it has it over me. The difference between somebody not in Christ and somebody in Christ is that in Christ it is fulfilled for us. Until all is fulfilled, he fulfilled it. So we're not under law. He has done it for us. If you want to be under the law, then you cannot be in Christ. Then Paul makes that absolutely clear in the book of Galatians. Do not let anybody sucker you into the Hebrew roots movement, which says that we have to go back and observe this and do that and not eat this and one thing and another. It is done. Either you are in Christ or you are under law. If you are under law, you will stand before God and you will be condemned. If you are in Christ, condemnation is now no longer a factor. You are never to be condemned again. You will be judged for what you do and do not do in Christ. But that is it. That's a really important tenet to understand, and this is what Paul is writing about here. Okay, as it is written, I'm going to read you that again. This was written then, and it still stands today. The law stands. It stands for you and me in Christ. Christ has fulfilled it, and so it is fulfilled for us. It stands for anybody not in Christ as their only means of obtaining heaven, and they can't do it, and so they will not obtain heaven. Do you see? Everybody understand that? Okay. All right. Um, God's word is fixed, firm, and unchanging. What it states stands forever. What Paul cites is from Psalm 51. Let me read it to you here, just so we have it there. Psalm 51. Four. I just dropped something here, and it says, here. what's that? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Again, I'll do the whole thing because he doesn't have the whole verse, but it's four. But we'll read three and four. Okay. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, justified when you judge. Okay. And then go ahead and read verse five because that's one that people tend to miss. Okay. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived. There you go. Sin is in all human beings from the moment of conception. From the moment of conception. I don't need to go any further with that. If you can't process that, I don't know what to tell you. That is what the Bible teaches. From the moment you are conceived, you are in sin because you inherited it from your father. If you want to believe in the Marian lie that she was uh, immaculate conception, you've got the wrong church here. 
there is no such thing as the Immaculate Conception. That is not referring to Jesus. That is referring. What's that? It violates what the. It, it violates. That's exactly right. You were going to be half man, half God. Oh, no, God. fully, no, fully man, fully and fully, fully God. God. So yeah. There you go. You yeah. can't get that. That's right. From a you cannot have the Immaculate Conception. What is Immaculate Conception? Okay, what it is, yeah. is they are saying that Mary was kept from a sinful state. Mm -hmm. Okay? In other words, Christ was born of the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. and of man. But the picture of Christ that we have in circumcision is the cutting of the sin line from Adam, which implies that sin travels through man. Okay? Sin travels through man, but not through woman. Mary was a vehicle to carry the Redeemer of the world. Okay, God, uh, uh, Christ was conceived in Mary's womb. She, he bore all of her human DNA, but none of his father's. The sin did not travel through the father because his father was without sin. He is God, right? And so that is the virgin birth. Immaculate Conception is saying that God kept Mary from a sinful state in order to always be without sin. And she never said at any point. What's because, that? It goes further because in order for her to have been born sinless, her mother had to be... No, no, no. That, that, it doesn't sure. say that. It doesn't say that. Sure. that this is Catholic doctrine only pertains to Mary. And I'll give you an example so you can understand this. Okay, this is what they will tell you when you're talking to a Catholic. Here is... An invented doctrine. It, it is. It's an invented doctrine. but years later, yeah. Here it is. You're walking along and there is a hole. Okay? You got a hole here. This is the pit of sin. All right? Adam was walking along and he fell in. And ever since, and all people have been in this pit with him. Okay? This is just an easy way of understanding Immaculate Conception. Mary came along, who was to be the mother of God, and so the Catholics say, oh, he just had her step around that hole and just kept on walking. So he kept her from going into original sin. Now, what is the problem with that? What is the problem with saying that she was kept from sin? She's not deity. Right. Well, no, she's a human. All of sin. And then, and then she's keep it simple. She wouldn't have died. What? She wouldn't. She wouldn't have died. Well, that's why they believe in the Assumption of Mary. They had to teach. Oh. They had to bring that in in the eighteen no, hundreds. The the uh, she was taken up to heaven bodily. Yeah. That okay. wasn't until nineteen fifty nine. Yeah, yeah nineteen fifty nine. That actually became doctrine. That's right. That's right. Okay, so can I take a stab at Go ahead. If she could do it, why didn't everybody... That's did, exactly right. Why did Jesus bother dying? On why did Jesus die on the cross? If he can do it for oh, one, why yeah. doesn't he do it for everybody? Yeah. He just erased the sin of Adam and start all over again. That means we need no redeemer. And that's why she is called by many people a co-redemptrix. Right. She's definitely a co-mediatrix, which means they say she's up there mediating, and that's why they pray to Mary. But many Catholics actually call her a co-redemptrix. She can redeem us because she was without sin. She didn't die, but she was taken up to heaven, so she can redeem us. Everything falls apart when you have any person on earth that wasn't conceived in sin. All people were conceived in sin. And that is the problem with that, okay? I won't go any further because then I'll have people angry at me, but just let it, you let it, you let it think, what does that mean when you were conceived in sin? And just go from there, okay? This is where that critical thinking comes it, Critical thinking comes in there, but if I say what I always say, I always have... Five people never show up at Bible class again because they don't want to hear the truth about certain doctrines. So basically, but, she didn't need Jesus in that case. Well, she didn't need Jesus at all. That's right. And we don't need Jesus either because God can take away our sin 
Anytime he, he wants. He needed her more than she needed him. How's that go? The whole thing is just, it, it is just bad doctrine, okay? So just make sure that you understand what Paul is saying here bears on everything in human history, and it bears especially on the life and person of Jesus Christ. 323 okay? will clear that right up. What's that? 323 will clear that right up. Yeah, we're going to get there. All of sin and all flesh, but they say that didn't apply to her. And if you give her the verse, everybody says, well, what does she say? I rejoice in God, my Savior. How can she need a Savior if she didn't have sin? She needed to be saved. And the Catholics have come up with an answer for every single one of those heretical doctrines. Okay? They're not good answers, but they've come up with an answer for it. So there's no point in arguing it. If they're going to argue that position, it's just like a Jehovah's Witness arguing that Jesus didn't say what he said when he said, you see, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as I have. Okay, so there you go. It doesn't matter. Once you get to that point in your thinking that you know, we're talking about replacement theologians, they're never going to change because pride steps in or whatever. Rebellion against God, I don't know what it is, but it, people will not change. They have to come to the, their own realization that Christ died for them and nobody else can. Mary can't. Okay, we'll go on. Um, and this is amazing. This The psalm that we just read, this amazingly emotional psalm was written by David after he was confronted by God's prophet, Nathan. David had committed adultery with a married woman and subsequently murdered her husband. He acknowledged that his faithfulness in no way compromised God's righteousness. Okay? Against you, you alone have I sinned. His unfaithfulness in no way compromised God. God doesn't change at all. Whether we repent and turn to God or not, he has not changed one iota. All right? God is God. He will never change. All right? So, um, and this is true even though he was not only an Israelite, but God's anointed king of Israel. The sin that David committed was against God and only God. And because of this, God is found both just and blameless in the presence of David's unrighteousness. If this is so with David, Israel's king, then it must be so with all people, including Mary, I hate to say it, all people. Nobody is more righteous than God. You want to understand this in a detailed way, what book of the Bible are you going to read? Old Testament, what book are you going to go to to understand that God's righteousness stands? He is just, and nothing we do can thwart it. The Old Testament? Old Testament. Begins with J and ends with O-B. Oh. Yeah, read the book of Job. That, think about that yeah, it, it, it'll it'll it take care of all of your questions about that. It's a very hard book to read. You've got to read it about seven hundred times before it really starts to sink in. But it is showing that God's righteousness is an innate quality of His. It it is a part of His very being, just like His truth, His mercy, His justice. They are all attributes of Him. They don't change in any way, shape, or form. God does not change in love. Okay, I've said this many times, but when he says, when the Bible says God is love, that means God is love. It doesn't change, it doesn't get more, it doesn't get less. And you can say, well, he loves me more than he loves Adolf Hitler. No, he didn't love you any more than he loves Adolf Hitler. God is love. He infinitely loves the work of his hands. It is we who go against another one of his infinite attributes. Let me really quickly show you this so you understand what I'm talking about. You got my eraser because I got to get rid of the hole that Mary fell into. <laughs> okay, so we have. Over it. She was born in that hole. Yeah, she was born in that hole. Okay, we've got um, mercy. That's one of God's attributes. And there are, uh, this may not be a, a complete list, 
but it is something that, um, uh, if you think it through, these are certainly his attributes, and people will d debate a little bit, but you've got mercy and you've got grace. What is mercy? It's not getting what you do deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. So you've got mercy, you've got grace. I'm gonna put them on the opposite side and put them over here. And it, we just talked about God being truth, right? God is truthful. Anything else? God is love. Oh boy, he's God is love, okay? And we've got God is Kadosh. Holy. Holy. There you go. I got a couple of people that know Hebrew here. Where did you learn Hebrew? Okay. And then uh, let's see here. God is truthful. He's merciful. He's loving. He's uh, holy. He's graceful. And he is righteous. Just. And he is just. Okay. So we've got these things. Okay. God is love. Everything about God is love. Okay. But if I've done something wrong, I violated his character, which is what Paul is speaking about, right? His justice demands, it absolutely demands that he judge me. If he doesn't, then he is not just. I've done something wrong. I violated this and I can't do anything about it. And he also says that uh, it, uh, that leads into his righteousness. If he doesn't judge me, he is unjust, but he is also unrighteous. Because think of it this way. I kill one of you all, the mother of one of you all, and we. I get called into court, and you're standing there, and the judge says, I know you didn't mean it. I'm going to let you go. What would you say about that judge? He's unrighteous. He's a Democrat. That's right. He is an unrighteous judge. And Jesus even speaks of the unrighteous judge. But you're right. That, 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 that's a perfect example. But he has not upheld his own justice, the justice which society demands, okay, which... and. He also has shown that he is unrighteous, okay? Now, he thought that he was being merciful, right, by doing that, but actually he wasn't because the person who was killed did not receive the right judgment, okay? So we've got all of these things working against each other. Um, God wants to be merciful to us, okay, but he can't because he is just and righteous and holy, okay? And he can't, if he shows grace on us, which he, he wants to do, Grace is getting what you don't deserve, okay? And if he gives us grace at the expense of his mercy or at the expense of his love or at the expense of his holiness, then that nullifies the other attribute. You see what I'm saying? God is truth. He says, I will redeem my people. He said that in his word, right? Well, how can he redeem us when we have sin in us? Here's the problem. Sin is out here. It's infecting us. He's truthful. He says he's going to redeem us, but we can't because we have sin in us, so he can't show mercy on us, right? Because if he did, then he would be violating his just, righteous, and holy character, okay? Which would demonstrate that he is unholy. All of these things are working against each other, every one of them. They're pulling at each other. They are tensions in God because God cannot change any of them. How do you reconcile all these? Jesus, the cross, right in the middle. Because in the cross, he has satisfied his just, righteous, and holy character. Somebody else that can and is qualified to pay the penalty has paid the penalty. Therefore, he is also righteous. He has not violated his righteousness. He has demonstrated infinite grace in what he did because a finite sin against an infinite God separates us infinitely. That's right. But now he can show us grace because the cross has reconciled that. He retains his holy character because his justice and his righteousness are not violated. He proves that he is love, which he is because he did this for Adolf Hitler as well as for you. He doesn't love Adolf Hitler anymore. Adolf Hitler is the one that said, 
I don't want that. I'm going over this way. It was his voluntary choice, okay? He demonstrated perfect mercy on the objects of his affection. He also, um, what was the S for? Oh, that was sin, okay. Anyway, he's ultimately truthful because he did eradicate sin just as he said he would. I will give you a redeemer. Everything about the cross, everything about our humanity is resolved in the cross, and without the cross, none of it will be. Every one of those tensions will exist for all of eternity, forever and ever and ever, without the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no hope for fallen man. He cannot show his just, righteous, and holy character if he violates one of his other attributes. God cannot change. So do you all understand that? The cross is what does it. The cross is the center of everything. And without the cross, and without... The, the, I talked to these guys here a couple days ago about some of the things that are heresy. Tell me very plainly, just one word, uh, 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 one word at a time, what are some heretical issues? Maybe two words. Well, no, that's not heresy. Uh, heresy is something that is taught. Works. What's that? That's right. He was not deity. Okay? If you deny the deity of Jesus Christ, deity. Okay? Another one is the virgin birth. If you deny that because it goes into his deity, then that's a heresy. Okay? The resurrection, if you do not have a resurrection of Christ, that is a heresy to teach that. A literal bodily resurrection. Another one, inspiration of scripture. That if you don't teach the inspiration of scripture, you are a heretic. Okay? Um, the virgin birth, I said, you've got the deity of Christ, you've got the resurrection of Christ, and uh, you've got the all-sufficient atonement of Jesus Christ. If you don't teach that, you're a heretic. He's sufficiently and completely atoned. And that's when we were talking about the Catholics. I told you I'd send you the canons to remind me of that. The canons of the Catholics say that he... I've got them right over here. I'll show you afterward. Anyway, the, the nine of the canons of the Council of Trenton, 1546... They became a her heretical church at that time. Okay, so you have that, and you Salvation have one more. Faith? No, that's not a heresy. That's just something that is a result of. Um, that's what we're believing in, and what we're okay. But it, it could be to a point. There's one more that I'm thinking of, and that is a literal re re return of Jesus Christ. So you've got the deity of Jesus Christ. You've got the virgin birth. You've got the um, uh, resurrection. You've got the return of Christ. You've got the all-sufficient atonement and inspiration of Scripture. People will argue one or two other ones, but the inspiration of Scripture takes care of salvation by faith, what you just mentioned, because that is a tenet in the Bible, okay? Anyway, if you remember those one, two, three, four, if you remember those six, you're going to be not a heretic if you don't teach them, okay? You'll be mainstream if you do teach them, okay? There are a million doctrines in the Bible that you can teach and not be a heretic. That doctrine is sin, but it does not mean that you're a heretic. But if you teach one of those, there was no virgin birth. It logically leads to a fault which cannot be overcome in the mind of a person. Now, having said that, teaching a heresy does not mean that you're not a saved person. What it means is the next person will never be saved. And that's an important thing to understand because a person can call on Jesus Christ and be saved, and then later in life he can say, well, there was no virgin birth. Well, he's a heretic. He's teaching something wrong, and the next people logically cannot come to a correct saving knowledge of Jesus. That's the problem with heresies, is it doesn't keep a person from being saved, it keeps the next person from being saved. And that person very well may not be saved, okay? But just understand that salvation is eternal, and if you've called on Christ 
do when you, here's, here's an example for you. When you talk about Jesus, when you give somebody a track and when you lead them to Christ, do you ever, has anybody here ever brought up the virgin birth? No. No. So obviously it's not necessary for salvation, but logically it is necessary that if you teach that it is not true, that person will not be saved. If you understand that, yes. This is another, um, is that he's going to judge. Well, that's part of inspiration of scripture. Okay. That is that falls I mean, under the inspiration of scripture. Yeah. These things are things that there's are, a lot of people that don't think that he's going to judge. And he is, and they'll get. A, it's like a lot of people don't believe in a rapture, and they're just going to be more surprised than you and me, right? But they will be raptured. Okay, that's that's these here will keep somebody from being saved. Okay. Other things are simply bad doctrine. Okay, these will actually keep somebody if you take the time and you say, which is what all cults do. They take one or two or three of these and they add them into their theology and the people are trained to not believe in these things and they will never come to know the correct Jesus. That's why we talk about the true Jesus and false Jesus or antichrists, false Christ. Okay. Remember those and you will be safe. How will the eye prevent somebody from being saved? Well, if you don't believe that God's word is infallible, (laughs) then all of these things don't matter. What if they believe in the rest except that one? I know it's a little crazy thinking, but... We'll think it through. If the Bible says that these tenets, okay, you have the virgin birth. If you take out one verse from Scripture and you say, well, that verse uh, isn't true, then that means the whole Bible couldn't be true. It becomes pick and choose. But God says in his word, the apnustos, God breathed. It is God's word. You are calling into question God. And if you tell somebody, I'm not talking about you. If you tell somebody that this is not God's infallible word, then they can now pick and choose what they want out of it. It becomes heretical because that person now no longer has anything stable to, to stand right. on. You see what I'm saying? You yeah. make up your own stuff. The, that's, you make up your own stuff out of this book. And that's what people do all the time. They just make stuff up out of this word because they say this is not God's word entirely and completely. There's a couple ways of looking at the Bible. This is, um, this is God's word. It is the word of God. Or you could say it becomes the word of God. Mm-hmm. That's what, like, Methodists nowadays, a lot of Methodist churches say, well, this becomes the word of God. I read it, and it becomes God's word to me, okay? Which you are the one that determines God's word, okay? There's another one. Let me think this through for just a second, because I wasn't prepared for that question. It becomes the word of God, it is the word of God, or it contains the word of God. That would be the Jesus Seminar people, right? What percentage? Yeah, what percentage? It contains the word of God. It's in there, but it's not all the word of God. It's diluted. Yeah, it's diluted. And so we have to determine what is the word of God. Once again, it becomes pick and choose. So you've got those three options. Either it's actually four. It's not the word of God. It contains the word of God. It becomes the word of God, or it is the word of God. Like the Episcopal Church, where they say it's not literal, but we're not treat the Bible as literal. We treat it with seriousness. That's, that's right. That's on their website. Well, well, that's fine. They can say that, but to them, then it becomes the Word of God or it contains the Word of God, but it's not the Word of God. Mm-hmm. It's not God's literal Word. And they can get away with that, and they get a lot of money in that church, and a lot of people like it, and there are many, many people that are going to hell because of it, because they have never come to an understanding of Jesus Christ and what he has done and those principal tenets there. So it, it's, it, it, is, it is a heretical it falls in with the others. If you deny the all-sufficiency of the atonement of Jesus Christ, it, there's just no salvation. If you tell somebody, he died but not for every one of your sins, then that means that that, mm-hmm. that means nothing. Because you've got, when, do, when have I done enough? When do I add on to what he has done? God wasn't capable of taking care of my sin, and now I've got to work it out on my own. Right. Try just, working that. 
Yeah, try working that out. You'll Work be spending all eternity trying to fi figure out something better, and you'll never come to it. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, uh, where were we? Um, oh, I got a good example right here. I read the last sentence again. He is the ultimate standard by which things are judged, and his glory is seen more clearly when the sinner is compared to him. Has anybody ever felt that way when you when you came to Jesus? How absolutely vile you were compared to what you now understand? I know I did. I, I was scared to death. When I realized what God was like and the sin that I had in my life, I was literally scared to death. It was right down in that building, just down the road, about two blocks from here. And I was literally scared to death. My wife knows. I cried for months. I just sat there and read the Bible and I wept because I understood when I put myself next to him in comparison, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. So um, he is, uh, let me go back and read just a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm going to read the whole paragraph again. This unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. The law is his standard and it shows his very nature. In other words, this isn't just speaking of his righteousness toward man, but his innate righteousness. These things right here, okay? The first is the result of the latter, not the other way around. The sins we commit are a violation of his moral purity, and they therefore demonstrate his perfect righteousness. He is the ultimate standard by which things are judged, and his glory is seen more clearly when the sinner is compared to him. Imagine the purest diamond in the world. If there was nothing to compare the diamond to, then the one wouldn't know how truly exquisite it was. You've got the most perfect diamond in the world, but if you don't have anything to compare it to, then it's just useless. And this is like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They had nothing to compare it to. They had perfection, and they had nothing to compare it to. And so they said, well, we're going to try something else, okay? Same idea. However, when other stones of varying materials, quality, luster, etc., are placed next to it, the true majesty of this stone of stones is seen for what it is. The law which reflects God's righteousness is like the diamond, and our transgression of the law is like the flawed stone. If you take yourself and you compare it against the law, I don't know how many of you have actually read the entire Old Testament, but especially when you're going through the do's and don'ts in uh, you know, uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, I don't know how you felt, but I felt miserable. I, I, I literally felt miserable. I, I, I couldn't get my head around it the perfection of what he is telling us he expects of us and the whole time i already knew jesus by this point i was every time i came to that i was just like thank god for jesus thank god for jesus and the more i understood what and even now when i read the law there are times where i literally am scared at some of the things i've done and i think uh, and then i just remember jesus he's taking care of it but i mean if you really consider yourself in comparison to what he expects of us which is a reflection of who he is there's just no hope. I mean, there is literally no hope. So now, Paul now asks, because the greatness and majesty of God are seen more clearly because of our imperfections, then isn't God unjust who inflicts wrath? That's his question. How can God judge us when he is shown more glorious through our sin, right? When I sinned, I was like, how glorious is God? I wouldn't have known unless I had sinned. So how can he judge me? Because his glory is shown by me understanding my sin. That's what Paul is asking here. Right. Okay? Doesn't our sin have a good purpose? And doesn't our sin negate his right to judge us? Paul's asking this. Right? This is the question of the impenitent sinner. 
This is the question of the unreasoning animal, as Peter will describe him later. This is the question of the one who fails to contemplate the splendor of the Creator. Such a question reveals a lack of dignity for self and a lack of respect for God. As Paul says, I speak as a man. His words are intended to reflect fallen Adam, the unspiritual carnal man. That's what he's doing. He's setting up this argument, which he always does. He asks questions and he says, well, what about this? And it's intended to, for you to think this through and to say, I see what he's doing. I'm now understanding this position that I am in because of what, he's not saying that this is actually the case, he's asking it in a rhetorical way. Life application, we'll get on to verse six, when we have last verse of the day. Um, let's see here, how do you perceive sin? If you believe that your sin, which demonstrates the righteousness of God, is excusable because God has shown holy through it, then you have failed to take in the whole picture. Take a look today at the things you don't like in others, okay, things that upset you. Then consider that you are comparing against these things against yourself. I don't like what he did. Well, guess what? Liberals don't like what I do, right? We're making our judgments against our own self. Now imagine your sin placed next to the Creator who is infinitely more pure than you. How should he respond? Think it through, right? I look at you know these, these Hollywood actors that are out there acting like fools on the street, and I say, well, look at how unrighteous they are. Well, God could do the same thing with me. I'm infinitely worse to him than that person over there, which I really don't like is to me. I'm just making a simple comparison between two humans that just have different sins, that's all. He's looking at all humans and saying they're completely corrupt. Completely. There's nothing good in them at all. Zero. Okay? That doesn't mean, though, and I'll say this now, we're going to get to that verse again when Paul will talk about this. When he says there is none who does good, no, not one, R.C. Sproul takes that to an, un, or I shouldn't say just R.C. Sproul, Calvinists in general, they take it to an unintended consequence. If there's no good in us, then we cannot choose God. And that is completely false. We see the good in him, and we accept the good. Just to say that there's no good in us does not mean that we have left our brains and our free will and our rational thinking at the door. I can walk up to a store and I can see that diamond and I can say, that is perfect. I want that. And that's what God does with us. There is no such thing as being regenerated in order to believe. Don't listen to that kind of nonsense. As much as I respect R.C. Sproul and as much as I love to read his teachings and listen to him sometimes, he's a great speaker. He teaches this Calvinist doctrine that says that we are in sin, we are dead, and therefore we cannot regenerate ourselves. Nobody says we re regenerate ourselves. We're dead in sin, but we're live human beings. We're cognitive, functioning human beings. And we have the ability to say, I want that. And when we do that, that's when Jesus says, I'm going to do this. And he regenerates us. Okay? Don't check your brain at the door just because somebody tells you something, especially when he's a great, eloquent speaker. All right, verse 3 6. We didn't do four. We didn't? No, but you explained it well. <laughs> oh. You mean I didn't finish four? I was still in four, and you didn't read five. That's okay. That's okay. We did We did five. He didn't read it, but that's okay. So All right. Just read it just for laughs? Or? What's that? I'm going to read it just for laughs. Yeah, go ahead and read five and six. Go okay. ahead. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Uh, that's And I explained that. Okay, yes. there you go. I didn't realize you didn't read it. Sorry. It's okay. I, I must have slipped. <laughs> that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us. 
Am I a human being? Uh, am I a human argument? Okay, you're reading I'm six? I'm using a human... Uh, I, I'm just about to get into it now. This is in parentheses. Oh, I see. Yes, yes, yes. I am using, I am using a human argument. Six. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Okay, and that's almost identical to mine, so I don't need you to read again. But I will read 3, 5 again. It says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? That's what I explained. And then he says in this version, I speak as a man. Mm -hmm. Instead of a human argument, I speak as a man. And then his answer, just as you said, certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? If he's using human logic, then he can't judge the world because we're doing this all the time. Right? And we'll go ahead and read the, the comments on six, and then we'll be done for the day. Um, this verse is in response to the question Paul raised. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? If Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And I went through that up there with you so you could understand that. All right? A resounding reply results from Paul's pen. Certainly not. By no means could uh, God be unjust. Paul doesn't even address why, though. He doesn't bother with it. He takes it as an axiom that God will, in fact, judge the world. The Bible says it. He's truth. He can't lie. It's going to happen. Sin doesn't determine God's righteousness. Rather, how he deals with sin is what determines his righteousness. Remember this? Sin is out here. That doesn't have anything to do with his righteousness. If he doesn't deal with that sin, then he is unjust, he is unrighteous, he is unloving, by the way, because if I sinned against your mom by killing her and he forgives me without taking the necessary punishment, then he's unloving. He's unloving towards her, maybe not towards me, but then that shows that there's a change in God. He loves her, me and not her, right? None of that can be. That is what's happening, and you just think of this. Make a little circle, put the cross in the middle, and when you take away the cross, Everything falls apart. Every single thing falls apart. God cannot violate one of his own attributes in order to demonstrate another attribute more. Doesn't work that way, okay? So, um, certainly not. Um, let's see. Okay, rather, how he deals with sin does. Sin is a violation of his holiness. Therefore, dealing with the sin is something that must occur or is not holy, okay? As the creator, everything about God simply is. No change. Remember uh, Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. Actually, the best translation is I am that I am. He simply is. He exists. Everything about him is. He doesn't grow in love. He's not passionate. God is impassionate. He doesn't show emotions. And I'm talking about God the creator, the Godhead. I'm not talking about the second member of the Trinity stepping out of eternity and uniting with human flesh and being the Lord. That's a completely different argument there. We're talking about God. Go, we'll go back here. we got ten more minutes. Okay. Let me erase it, just so you understand. Just so you understand this. And I think we'll be able to finish this before 6.30. Okay. There's nothing. No time, no space, no matter. Okay. When he created time, matter and space happened at exactly the same time. Einstein proved that. We know it's true. If you have this, what is it doing right now? It's occupying space and it's getting older, mm -hmm. right? Okay. If you took away the space, then this wouldn't have any place to be. And so if you think it through, time, space, and matter all happened at exactly the same moment. You can't have one without the other two. Take away any of them, the other two don't exist. So that means when he created, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning means that there was a beginning, right? 
Okay? If there was a beginning, then there was a time when there was nothing, which is before the beginning, but which is without time. Okay? I know that's hard to understand. So, he is here. We'll say that this is time. He is here. There was never any time associated with him. He simply is. Okay? Then he created this thing, time, space, matter. Does that in any way affect him? No. It is completely separate from him. He is still in the eternal, unchanging existence state that he was, that he is, and that he always will be. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It says Jesus Christ. It doesn't say Jesus. Jesus is the human being. He's in the stream of time. Okay? The Christ is from God. Okay? Always existed. Okay, now try to think about this. Before there was time, space, and matter, was there any change in God? Would there be? There couldn't be, because if there was a change, it would imply There's time. Time. There's time. That's right. So God is. He created this, and it has no bearing on him. And so he is. <coughs> and so when people say, well, God changes in the Old Testament. No, 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 no. That's anthropomorphic speech. It's attributing qualities of man to God so we can understand him. It's like the earth. It says in the, the Bible that the sun also rises. Does the sun rise? No. no. That's from man's perspective. The sun never rises. The sun is there and the earth is spinning and it looks like it rises from here. Same thing with God. There's no change in God. Just remember that. God doesn't change. He doesn't get happy. He doesn't get sad. God is. And that goes back to those attributes. If you say that there is change in God and that God starts loving or he starts getting happy or that anything else, it's not the God of the Bible. Okay? It's not. So, keep that in mind. That is what Paul is saying here, or that's what I'm saying based on Paul's comments. He is outside of time, and this, thus there is no change in him. He cannot change one of his eternal attributes unless he's not God. And if he's not God, then he can do whatever he wants, okay? He is God, and he cannot violate his own attributes, all right? As this is so, God is perfectly righteous. His righteousness is. Any violation of it must be judged, or he is not perfectly righteous, but he is, and therefore his righteousness cannot be compromised. Similarly, God is perfectly just. Because he is, the penalty for a violation of his righteousness must be perfect. It must be a perfect penalty for it, okay? The law demands that every violation be punished, and the wages of sin is death, right? There's no way around this. That's why we die. We have sin, we die, okay? We have earned death, and we have earned condemnation by simply existing. I was conceived in sin. I have earned that. If we do not receive this, then God is not perfectly just, but he is. God is also perfectly holy. Because we are made unclean from our transgressions against his perfectly holy nature, we must be eternally separated from him, or he is not perfectly holy, but he is. If a person committed only one moral transgression in his entire life, it is sufficient to eternally separate him from God. God cannot accept 1% unrighteousness. He does not weigh sins on a balance as Islam teaches. Nothing but absolute righteousness and pure holiness can be accepted by God. Are you starting to understand why the term in Christ is so important? When it says in Christ, we are in Christ, because if we weren't in Christ, this would be, it would still pertain to us right now, okay? Adding to the problem is that God is absolutely truthful. He has spoken from his very nature what is and what is not acceptable for man. If God overlooks the words he spoke in absolute truth, then he is not truthful. 
and impossibility. However, God has promised to redeem his people, as I said a few minutes ago. And because he has spoken, then it must be so, or he's not truthful. And this is impossible. On the other side of this is God's mercy. He is absolutely merciful. Keep thinking of that little chart I made up there. However, if in his mercy he overlooks the transgressions, then he violates his own righteousness. It would be ridiculous to even consider. Further, God is perfectly gracious, and he longs to participate in fellowship with his people, bestowing infinite grace upon them. However, because he's perfectly holy, this cannot occur with sinful man, or he is not perfectly holy, this is impossible. And finally, God is love. God loves each person perfectly, but he cannot fellowship with his beloved creatures because of their sins. If he were to do so, he would violate his just, righteous, and holy character. This is also impossible. As I said, this leaves a tension between these characteristics of God and the man who has sinned against God. More terrifying is that Adam's sin and his fallen nature, as we've already said twice tonight, is transferred to his descendants. We cannot go back in time before the sins that we've committed, nor can Adam go back before his sin. Time is moving forward, and it is the medium in which we live and interact with God. This separation is complete, God's holiness has been violated, and there is nothing, nothing we can do. And that's why I said to you guys a couple days ago, every religion on this planet, except for one, is based on works. Every single religion on this planet comes down to works of some kind, except one. And that is faith in Messiah, okay? Only one. God's holiness has been violated and there's nothing we can do. Judgment must come. This is the certainty of the matter. Therefore, through our unrighteous, though our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, it no way negates the judgment which must result. Where does that judgment come from? Thank God for Jesus Christ. He took our judgment upon himself, being the perfect substitute without sin, which is allowed. As I said, if you go up to uh, the court and you have a, a traffic fine for $2,000 because you were doing 187 miles an hour down I-75, somebody can pay that $2,000 fine for you. And the law is satisfied. God has allowed a substitute, pictured all the way, wait till we get to Leviticus chapter 16. I know we still probably got another 20 weeks before we get there, but that, you're not going to believe what is in chapter 16 of Leviticus. You're not going to believe it. I've got to say something. Before I go on, I'm going to read you my life application in just a second. We're going to be done. we got two more minutes. I have to tell you something. There is somebody, I'm just going to call her Emma because that's what she calls herself. On She attends online and um, her, her Facebook profile is Emma. I don't want to give away her real name. Okay, but she has been emailing me about the sign of Jonah for like two weeks now. She's been very carefully and methodically because I said the sign of Jonah is not the three days in the belly of the fish, okay? And she's been thinking it through, and I'm so proud of her because she gets a little closer each time. And if she hasn't got it fully um, figured out by Sunday, then she's going to get it anyway in the Sunday sermon, unless the rapture happens first, but um, then she'll find out anyway. But I am so proud of this person because... She's been sending me these emails. Well, is it this? And I said, I, I don't know. Well, you're on the right track. And a little more. And then she, I think I've got this figured out. I said, you've got the right thing. Now go here. So I just wanted to let you all know that there are people out there that really cherish God's word. And she is, she's one of these people that is, I'm just very impressed with her line of reasoning as she's been coming closer and closer to what the sign of Jonah actually is. Okay. Life application word done. All sin must be judged. However, God in his wisdom and mercy has allowed the sin of man to be judged in a perfect substitute. 
by judging sin in this way, the tension, all that tension up there between God's eternal attributes, God's perfect righteousness required a sacrifice for the payment of our sins. His perfect holiness demanded that no iniquity could be found in that substitute. His perfect justice says that no unrighteousness can come into his presence, but a perfect payment restores felicity when offered by him and accepted by man. His perfect grace is demonstrated in the gift that we do not deserve. His perfect mercy is revealed in not condemning us as we deserve. His wrath was instead placed on his own precious son. His perfect truthfulness is upheld in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember when he said, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life? Okay, by which every promise and every covenant to man is fulfilled in him. And his perfect love is demonstrated in the giving of his own son on our behalf. Take time today to think through the enormity of what has transpired at the cross of Calvary. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. Especially when you put it that oh yeah, when you see web of stuff, when you like, see oh how God. it actually pertains to us in a real absolute way, it's almost scary, isn't it? But thank God for Jesus who could take care of every one of those tensions which exist because God cannot change. It's so simple. He did it for it's so simple when you yeah. see the cross. Absolutely. There's so many people are just nah, no. Can't be. That's right. Sergio, yes. would you close us in prayer tonight? Oh, nice and loud so the people can hear. Okay. Our Father in heaven. I thank you so much, God, for the opportunity to be here. Um, fellowship, Lord, um, be here in person, God. Uh, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity together, mm-hmm. Lord. And there's something about being physically present. Been so blessed to um, be a part of this church, God. Uh, Lord, and we look forward to your providence in each one of our lives. God, so I ask you for blessings for. Uh, each member who is here present and all of those who are online, God, uh, who've been so faithful, Lord, that we join them every week online. Lord, what a blessing it is to have uh, brothers and sisters across the world, Lord, uh, living uh, perhaps not in physical unity, Lord, but in you. Lord, so I thank you for everything. I uh, pray that uh, um, our lives may present you well, Lord. We reflect you everywhere we go. Father, uh, those who are in our hearts right now, um, pray, Lord, that will be mindful to um, pray for them, Lord, mindful to bring you to them, Lord. And you know who they are, God. You know who is in our hearts, and we love them. We want to know you, so God, you've revealed yourself to us. I pray all these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> okay, let me back this up here. Put that on break. Backing up. And hang on just a sec. It's getting there. It's getting there. It's getting there. Okay. We love you all. We want you to have a wonderful week, okay? We'll see you Sunday, we hope. See you later. Oh, she's working on it. Okay. She's, she probably didn't know that before, but she took it. Whoopsie. Stuff's wrong. Oopsie. Oopsie.
Sinner.